Good morning. morning. How's everybody doing? Great. Great. Hey, my name's Ty. I'm one of the pastors here. It is absolute, uh, an absolute privilege and joy to be here with you this Sunday morning. Uh, I got a few announcements before we get started into the message. Announcement number one, uh, Halloween is almost upon us and we're getting ready to have our second annual fall festival in Trunk or Treat. And so that'll be this coming, not Monday, but the Monday after that from 5 to 8 p.m., uh, here's what we need to do together as a family. We want to be a, a church that makes disciples of Jesus that live in community for the community. And so throwing an event like this is one way for us to be for our community, but we want to do it together, as I said, as a family. And so uh, originally we stated that we need 1,000 pounds of candy. And so, so far we have 600 pounds of candy. Yay, way to go. But guess what we need? 400 more pounds of candy. And so again, uh, this is the week. So let's make sure we do it this week. Go to Smith's, go to Costco, go wherever you go, get your candy and bring us some in as well. You can drop it off at the office or next Sunday, put it right here at the cross. Also, we have a couple of spots left for uh, your car. Basically, you want to uh, decorate your car, do some kind of theme. Angie and I, we picked our theme out. I uh, won't tell you, you have to see it on that day, but it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but you get to decorate your card, and that's how we get the candy out to the kids as they come walking by your car, trunk or treat style, and give out candy. So we have a few spots left. Make sure you sign up for that. Some setup, some teardown, and uh, some manning of the games there on the seat back pocket in front of you. You see a QR code there. If you'll scan that or go to Centerpoint and make sure you sign up for that. Okay, we, we got to do it, and it's this week. So, so you've waited long enough, so we got it this week. Got it? Some of you are like, ah, I'm still not doing it. All right, well, that's on you. Second announcement. Dale, could you hand me the box? Uh, we partner. We've done this for a few years now. We partner with an organization called uh, Olive Crest, and so they are... Um, creating these boxes to where we can take these boxes to the store and provide a Thanksgiving meal for a family that is in need. And so uh, we asked that you would stop by Center Point and grab one of these. Again, when you go to the store, you can put the things in the box. I've heard uh, that all the contents that go in this box cost about $25. So you can provide a meal for someone for Thanksgiving that would be a lot of help. Uh, there is one disclaimer though, well, actually two disclaimers. Make sure you follow the instructions on the box. No jazz here. Don't be like, I'm going to go play some jazz and buy a bunch of extra stuff. Don't do it. This needs to be pop radio right here. There's a formula. Just do it. It'll be successful. And so, uh, except for one thing, the box has a misprint. It says that they need 60 ounces of dried onion rings. That's five pounds of dried onion rings. It's six ounces, okay? Not 60. Del, will give this back to you. So make sure you grab one of these at center point as well. And we would super duper appreciate that. And then lastly, our GP students for camp this coming sun summer, they're having a uh, breakfast, a pancake breakfast. So make sure you uh, show up for that. It's not on the screen right now, but you show up for that. It is on November 5th from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. And all the proceeds will go to provide uh, money for student camp. It can be kind of pricey and it really helps relieve that tension within a family. You eat breakfast, so come down and eat breakfast. There it is. Make sure you come and eat those tasty uh, pancakes right there. Sound good? All right, let's get started. Um, I was a kid, <laughs> believe it or not, I was a kid, and I grew up in the 80s, and uh, growing up in the 80s in the middle of nowhere, uh, it was really hard to get satellite TV. Like, if you remember the 80s, to get a satellite TV, it was like that big 12-foot dish thing that went out in your yard. So some of my friends had it, and they had like hundreds of channels, but my dad absolutely refused to get one of those big eyesores out in our yard. And so I literally, this is no exaggeration, we literally grew up with four channels on TV. Some of you are like, oh, oh, hey, I grew up without internet too. We survived. But anyway, we had four channels. And so as a young man, you really had to kind of plan out your cartoon watching because cartoons came on in the morning before school 
uh, when you got out of school, and then that was it, except for Saturdays. Now, Saturday before lunchtime was the big cartoon day. Do you guys remember this? Big cartoon day. And so uh, I would get up, there's no kidding, I was like 8, 9, 10. I'd get up at 6 in the morning on a Saturday, and I'd make sure I'd wake no one up. My dad was already up. 6 in the morning to watch my favorite cartoon. You know what my favorite cartoon was and still is to this day? Looney Tunes. And some of you younger people are like, what's a Looney Tune? You know, like, uh, what is it, Bugs Bunny, Elmer Fudd, Sylvester, Tweety, all of them. Uh, well, there was, there was these two characters uh, on their show, and the one would chase the other around. They were kind of arch enemies, and they were known as? Tom Not Tom and Jerry. It was uh, Roadrunner and, and Wild E. Coyote. Uh, these two char- characters were created in 1949. And the whole, if you've never seen the show, let me help you out with it. Wile E. Coyote, uh, his whole goal was to try to catch the Roadrunner to eat the Roadrunner. However, after 73 years <laughs> of trying it, he never succeeded. And why? Why did it never happen? Well, unbeknown to Wile E. Coyote, uh, he was never allowed to do this because the uh, cartoon's creator is the, a guy by the name of Chuck Jones. He had a list of nine rules that applied to those two cartoon characters. Let me give you just a few of them. The Roadrunner cannot harm the coyote except going by and saying the words, beep, beep. It would only harm its pride. Another rule was, no outside force can harm the coyote, only his own stupidity or the failure of an Acme product. Remember that? Like he'd, he'd have like a, an Acme rocket and the fuse was too short or something like that and shoot him out, you know. Uh, number three, or the third one. Uh, The coyote could stop chasing the roadrunner at any time. He had the free will to do that, which is weird. Number four, the coyote is always more humiliated than harmed by his failures. Okay, today we are continuing our journey through the book of Esther. And if you missed any of it, you can go just read your Bible or go to online or go to YouTube or something like that and you watch it. But kind of get you up to speed on what's going on. Uh, Andrew Elder from Ireland did a wonderful job last week. Were you guys here for him? Yeah. So you can clap, but he's not here. He's not here. He didn't hear. I'm just kidding. I'll tell him. That, yeah. Anyway, it was great. Uh, but if you know the story, uh, God's people are, there's a law there for them all to be killed. There's about 15 million of them in the providences from, you know, the west side of Africa all the way over to the east side of India, uh, all because of this one Jewish person by the name of Mordecai. He would not bow down to a guy by the name of Haman. Haman's kind of like the prime minister. He's like the, the number two in charge of the land. And so uh, we left off basically that, that uh, Mordecai had gone to his younger cousin, which he kind of a daughter to him. She was supposed to go to the king and uh, kind of beg for the, the, the people's freedom, to beg for the people to not be murdered, annihilated, and killed. And so uh, what she does, she goes, and the first time she gets before the king, it's a real dangerous situation. And she says, hey, king, I want to invite you. I want to have like a, a banquet for you. I want to have a feast for you. And so they go and have this feast. It's amazing. But we kind of we look at Esther and like, Esther, why are you not asking? You're just, you're just inviting this guy to eat and drink more. He's been doing enough of that as it is. And then she says, oh, uh, he says, what's, what's your next request? She's like, well, I'm going to throw a party for you tomorrow. Uh, now, before they get to that party, the king, he goes to bed and he can't sleep. And so in the middle of the night, when you can't sleep, what do you do? You get out the book of Chronicles, which was a different book of Chronicles than the book of the Bible. I would suggest the book of Numbers in the Bible. It'll really put you to sleep nonetheless. Uh, but anyway, he's reading the book of Chronicles of their time, of their land, not of the Bible. And it said that the, there's someone by the name of Mordecai that foiled a plot in order to have him murdered by a couple of eunuchs. 
And he read in the, the book of Chronicles that nothing had been done to honor him. So he's like, gets up the next day. He's like, oh my gosh, we got to honor this guy. He brings his number two in and he says, hey, number two. And I love calling Haman a number two. He says, hey, number two, uh, what should happen to a person that foils a plan and saves a king's life? Well, Haman being self-absorbed, he's like, he's got, you got to be talking about me. He's like, I don't know, royal ro robe and get on the royal horse and be, you know, pranced around town and someone yell out, he's great. He's amazing. The king loves this guy. And the king was like, that's a great idea. Go get Mordecai and do that for him. And so Haman has to clothe Mordecai with like the royal stuff and put him on the horse and prance him around like, way to go, Mordecai. Mordecai's the best and all this and that. Uh, and so now the second feast is about to happen. In the back of your mind right now, you're wondering like, why did Ty start off with a story about wild E. Coyote and then go right into the synopsis of what's happened so far? Well, I'll tell you. There are a lot of similarities between Wild E. Coyote and Haman. Mordecai, like the roadrunner, posed absolutely no threat to Haman whatsoever. But every time Haman would see him, all he would hear was beep, beep, because he wouldn't, he wouldn't bow down to him. And did you notice that the only person who injured Wild E. Coyote was himself? It's going to be true of Haman as well. You'll see in just a minute. Also, Wile E. Coyote at any moment could have given up his efforts and stopped chasing uh, the roadrunner and saved himself a lot of pain and grief. At any moment, Haman could have stopped messing around with Mordecai and just like, whatever, dude, don't bow, it's okay, and moved on and saved himself a lot of pain and grief. In the cartoon, Wiley Coyote was more humiliated than harmed, but in Haman's case, harm is getting ready to befall him. The trap he had constructed was sprung on him. It's almost like art imitating life. And one more similarity, Chuck Jones, the author, had control of the story the whole time. God, the God of the people, has controlled the story the whole time. I want you to keep that in mind. So if you've got a Bible, go to Esther chapter 6. That's where we're going to be today. We'll be in the last verse of it. If you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, we always say you're going to need one. We've got them free in English and Spanish. Uh, there's an app on your phone called YouVersion. You can download it as well. We really want you to have a Bible. We'll put it on the screen for you as well. Um, here's what I want to see from our text today. I want to, us to see uh, this personally. And so I really want this to be personal. And I really want us to see something from the text cosmically, meaning like the, in, in the grand scheme of life and the universe. And here's what I want us to see. All evil will eventually collapse on itself. Pause. What a comfort that is. Think about the evil inside of us. Think about the evil around us. All evil will eventually collapse on itself. Or maybe another way to say it is evil will not win in the end. We may die, we may be injured, but in the end, in the grand scheme of things, evil will not win. God will win. That should be comforting to us. And so uh, here's what we want to do. Let's start in verse 14. Let's walk through this and see what happens. Are you ready? All right. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. And so the party's about to begin. Uh, Haman's been humiliated. He had to prance uh, Mordecai around. So at least... This second party is going to happen. And remember, it's just the king, the queen, and Haman. So Haman's been invited into the super intimate uh, party just for the king and queen only. He's a part of that. So this surely will lift his spirits. Verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. So he's in this inner circle, verse 2. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. 
Now remember, this is kind of a hyperbole here. He's just, there's an exaggeration, like, hey, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. And so they're eating and drinking. And it's interesting that she allows him to drink. She probably wants him to have a couple drinks in him before she makes this request. But let's pause and be reminded who the king is. Esther is still in a very dangerous situation. Remember, she's approached the king. Uh, the king's a bit unpredictable. Remember that she's been married to the king for five years now. Five years. And what does he not know about his queen? That she is Jewish as well. And so it could almost be taken that uh, when she reveals this, what she's going to in just a moment, that he could get really upset that he's been duped and she's been lying. And so it could be bad news for her because this king is a very unpredictable king. And now you ask, how unpredictable is he? Let me tell you a story. Fortunately, there's a lot of history recorded outside the Bible about this king right here, King Ahasuerus. Uh, there was a situation where someone asked the king, just like Esther, for a favor. There was a man who had given king uh, a large sum of money to help him fight against the, Greek, uh, the Greeks. Uh, same man also entertained the king in his own house. So he had him over in his own house quite a bit. So you know, he paid him a lot of money to you know, fight this war, invited him over into his house. Uh, well, this man had five sons, and all five sons were employed into uh, the, the royal army. And so they were going to go off to war and battle and different things like that. And so this was a friend of the king's. And so the man goes to, the dad goes to the king, says, hey, king, I would love for you to release my eldest son. That way I can keep my namesake going forward. A pretty simple request. Well, the king ended up pulling the oldest son, not saving Private Ryan style, but pulling the oldest son off the battlefield, had him cut in half, and had his whole army walk in between the two halves. So, yeah, he's a little bit unpredictable, right? He's a kind of a wild card. I mean, like, this, this is the kind of king that he is. And so I, I want us to see that because Esther is still in a very dangerous situation here. She's in a lot of danger. Verse 3, here comes the request. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, now you can kind of tell she's given some, some very buttery language right there. I got a butter. If, it, if, it's, if it's okay with you, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. Okay, she, she's dropping some crumbs down. She's got a request for her, and then she's going to make a request for her people. Now, if we didn't know the story, like in the king's situation, you wouldn't know who her people are. Now, let's, let's kind of let's walk through this. What happened to the king before, the night before? What happened to him? Couldn't sleep, right? Couldn't sleep at all. So uh, they got out the Chronicles. What did the king find out in the book of Chronicles the night before? There was a plot against him. These two eunuchs, I don't know why, they were wanting to kill him and put him to death. Now, who foiled the plan? Mordecai. And Mordecai, what nationality is he? Jewish. So it's less than 24 hours later, and the queen is informing him of some goings-on in the uh, empire that he is unaware of, and unaware of. And so it kind of feels like there's another plot. She's getting ready to present to him there's another plot. Now you ask, didn't Haman inform him of killing all the Jews? Well, we're going to see in the next verse when she heard about Haman being the one doing all this, like he's surprised. Because he, in the next verse, he's going to be like, who's doing this? And, and who, what, give me some names. So you're going to see that he's very surprised. Why is the king surprised by this? Well, notice in verse 4, Esther said this, We have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. In stating that she and her people have been sold, Esther is subtly suggesting 
that there is a plot brewing in the empire that the king doesn't know about. After all, within an empire, who has, who has the power to sell off a whole people group? The king and only the king. And yet now he's surprised by this. This is to imply that someone else has stepped in and begun selling away parts of the kingdom is to suggest that someone is trying to steal power away from the king. Esther is savvy. She is a baller. She knows exactly what she's doing. She's almost, it feels like she's setting up to the king that there is a traitor in the kingdom. There's a rat in the kingdom. And so the plot itself, she says, is for her and her people to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. These are the same words, if you remember back, that Haman used uh, if it, in the uh, law that he wanted drafted. But for some reason, it doesn't ring a bell with the king. Are you tracking with me? Okay, because so why is this surprising to the king? Let's have some fun with this. Take your Bible and go back to Esther chapter 3, verse 9. I want to show you something. Now, what I'm getting ready to say is some speculation, but I think, it's, I think it makes sense. Because why does she bring up selling the people uh, and not straight to the, the killing of the people. Well, look at verse 9 in chapter 3. If it please the king, let it be... Now, this is Haman talking to the king. Let it, let it be decreed that they be... What's the word right there? Destroyed. Okay, hold that word. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may p uh, put it into the king's treasury. So Haman requests a decree that his, the people be destroyed and the king is going to get a big buy out on it. He's saying destroyed. Now, here's the interesting word about destroyed. Originally, this is written in Hebrew, we believe, Hebrew. And uh, you know what a homophone is? Yes. You know what that is? It's a word that uh, sounds the same but has a different meaning. Well, destroyed and the word enslave in that original language sound the same but have a different meaning. You know how that works, right? Like the word soul like, am I talking about the sole of my shoe or my, my own soul or the word whole, like whole foods or a hole in the ground? Well, that word destroy right there uh, is the same word as enslave. So perhaps Haman uses this very ambiguous language to trick the king into thinking that these people are going to be sold off to slavery. And unfortunately, that was a common practice back then and that the king would get a lot of money. And so the idea is the king is the one that looks like a fool here because he doesn't know what's going on in his kingdom and he has absolutely been duped by Haman. This is what I think Esther is doing. And it's genius. I mean, how well do you think that's going to go over with the king when he finds out that he's been duped? Again, is he a little bit unpredictable? We'll see. Go back to verse 3 of, of chapter 7. Does that make sense? I didn't want to lose you on that. Like, yeah, like there's a plot thickening right here. The queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, if it pleases the king, let my life be granted from, for me, for my wish and my people and for my request. And so what she's doing right here is, when she says my people and my request, she's getting really ready to reveal that she is Jew Jewish. Dun, dun, dun. Like this is a big... Now doesn't take a rocket surgeon to know that their marriage is not that close, right? I mean, they've been married for five years now, and he doesn't know that his wife is Jewish. Could, could, you, could you imagine playing that scenario out? Like she's at home, she's preparing dinner or picking up dinner. She's Grubhub, whatever it is. He gets home from a long day of kingy, and he says, hey, babe, what's for dinner? Something smells really good. And she's like, well, you know, I've cooked some gefilte fish and some lox and bagels and just some matzo ball soup. And he's like, why, why, why are we having Jewish food tonight? And she's like, 
because I'm Jewish. He's like, you're Jewish? When did you do that? And she's like, all of my life, you idiot. It's like, it's like she should, I mean, could you imagine them like, you know, they got married, they're, they're hanging out. You know how you married people do? You hang out, you ask a lot of questions. You're like, hey, you know, we're, we're newly married and, you know, what's your favorite color and what's your, what's your hobby? And oh, by the way, who's your God? And she's like, oh, he's, he's Yahweh. He's the one and only God. He's like, wait a minute. He has no idea of this whatsoever. I mean, the proverbial cat is out of the bag. And now, now he's getting ready to find out that she is Jewish and that he's getting ready to, to find out who her God is. It almost feels like it's been a private situation. And hopefully that doesn't describe our faith, that we have a private faith with Jesus. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I'm just not public about it. And I don't know what that means. And guess, guess what else doesn't know what that means? The Bible. The Bible has no idea about that. Our, our faith is supposed to be public. We're supposed to tell people about our faith, and they, they should be affected by how we live our lives and our faith, and so uh, we don't have private faith. And then also she talks about her people. She's putting her neck out on the line for her people, and I think that's one of the marks of God's people is that we put skin in the game for one another. And we see right here, she's going to end up putting a lot of skin in the game. And so she's informing the king that there's been a plot, that perhaps he's been duped. Verse five, uh, quick reminder, who's at this party? Three people, who are they? King, queen, Haman, okay. The king said to Esther, Queen Esther, who is he and where is he and who has done, who's dared to do this? So again, the king had no idea clueless all this. And he's like, I want names. Verse six, he's about to give a name. And Esther said, a foe and enemy, the wicked Haman, that Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Can, can we be honest? I can see your faces right now. Don't we get a little bit of a smile when we hear this? We hmm. Wonder why. Wonder why. Ponder that a second. This evil person just got exposed. And we like it. And I'd argue that's good. There's a part of us being created in God's image that we have the communicable attribute of, uh, of, of God's justice. So we want to see justice served. So anyway, this is a bad day for Haman. Haman went in there, I would assume, a little bit on cloud nine. He probably had his phone out before he was going in there, taking pictures, taking pictures of the palace first. Like, guys, getting ready to go to the second party because, you know, it's invite only and I'm the only one invited. I'm going to hang out with the king. But he didn't realize how he was going to hang in just a minute. Anyway, he probably, he pro I mean, I could have said they had shish kebabs on a skewer, but that's too cheesy of a joke right there. We'll find out later. But, um, man, he posted too quick on that because it's all getting ready to uh, land right back in his lap. Verse 7. So the king hears this, and the king arose in wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Now, I know, guys, I know I give a lot of TV references and pop culture references. It's just who I am. But you ever watch the show The Office? If you have, you remember that scene when uh, Michael Scott was tired of Dunder Mifflin and like, you know, they'd not done him well. He's like, you know what? I'll go start my own paper company. He had a great name for his new paper company. It was what? The Michael Scott paper company. Anyway, uh, David Wallace is the CEO of uh, Dunder Mifflin and, uh, you know, Michael Scott paper company is like taking away some of their customers. He's like, David Wallace, like, hey, we need to call him into the office and we need to kind of come up with some kind of deal to merge or, you know, acquire them or whatever. And then anyway, so Michael walks back into the Dunder Mifflin office and Charles, his kind of arch nemesis is there, the guy who took his job. And he says this, 
Well, 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 how the turntables. That was the moment in the story, right? Some of you are like, I've never seen that show and it made no sense to me, so there's that. Minutes ago, Esther was pleading for her life and now Haman is begging for his life. Remember, Haman got all in knots because someone wouldn't bow down to him and now what is he doing to Esther? He's bowing down to her. I love this. I think this is amazing. Like, way to go, God, turning all this. I want us to see, look at what God is doing right here. He's turning evil in on itself because this is what God does and will eventually do to all evil. How good is that? That's really good news. Now, the king is mad. He's so disoriented. He's got to walk out. He's got to take him up. You ever been so mad at something? And you're like, I need to walk outside real quick. I need to take a walk around the park. I need to drive to another state or something like, you're just mad. Like, it's just bad. He goes out here again. Uh, this is the fun part about the book of Esther for me is a lot of speculation. Here's a speculation. He's mad that this happened, but he's probably, I think, even more mad at himself that he didn't know what was going on. And now this will be a public issue. TMZ is knocking on the door. This is going to be a public issue in just a minute. And so everyone's going to find out that he's a doofus and can't run his kingdom very well. So I think he's mad, but he's plotting. He's like, how can I spin this story? Because if you look at uh, history in those time, uh, those time periods, kings were looked at as gods. And so there was, there was no imperfection in them, or that's the way they would spin all the stories around them. They wanted to make sure that everyone knew that they were perfect and had no error. And so my assumption, he's out there trying to figure out, how do I make Haman a scapegoat in this situation? Haman helps him out. Now, back in that time period, uh, you were not allowed within seven steps of a queen. Okay? Seven steps. Remember that. Verse 8. And the king returned from the palace guard to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king says, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left his mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. So Haman just did him a solid and he was falling over on the couch. And the king's like, aha, here's how I get him. Now, let's reason through this text. Haman understands he's getting ready to die. Do you think he was looking at Esther with romantic eyes? Like the king is out, he's like, oh, now's my chance. You know, strike up some berry white and I'll bring you some roses and I'm gonna, I'm gonna sweep you off your feet and we're gonna run off into the sunset. Do you think he's thinking about that in that moment? No. I think, this is just speculation, that the king is so quick on his feet, he sees that and is like, aha, now I know I can blame all this on Haman. Haman was bad, Haman was deceptive, Haman's making the moves on the queen, he's gonna die. That's what I think is going on there. Again, total speculation. So, um, how is Haman going to die? With what device shall he die with? Hmm, we wonder. Verse 9. Then Harbono, one of the eunuchs in attendance uh, on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows... Hey, you remember that gallow that he built? <laughs> That's just funny, man. <laughs> that gallow that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house in his backyard, 50 cubits high, which is 75 feet, remind you. And the king said... Hang him on that. Well, look at the coincidence there. Imagine Haman's going out. Remember the story earlier. He's talking to his wife. He's talking to his friends. He's got, history tells us, 600 sons. He's bragging about this guy, Mordecai. Like, I'm going to end this guy. If you, you know, you better bow down to me or this is what's going to happen to you. He's bragging to his family, bragging to everyone. 
And now the thing in his backyard or front yard, I don't know, side yard, who cares? The thing that he's created in order to kill Mordecai, hang him on that. In verse 10, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Great transition, Jesus juke right here, was that the king's wrath was abated because their sacrifice had been made or a death had happened. We can make that connection. I think that'd be fine that, that God's wrath towards humanity had been abated because of all that Christ had done on the cross. Now, let's pause. That's it of the story right there. If you were to finish the story right here, it, it would feel pretty good, right? We'd be like, oh yeah, the bad guy, Haman, he, he died and hooray. But remember, the law, the edict they put in place is irrevocable. We still, as the, as the audience, as the reader, as the recipient of this, we, we still don't have that cleaned up yet. So as of right now, Haman's dead, but you can't go back and change the law. That's, 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 that's the rule. That's just the rule. And so as of right now, still in the story, 15 million Jews are going to be killed soon. So we still have tension. We still have problems. So, so what do we do with this? You got to come back next week and we'll find out. But I, I don't wanna, I'm not finished. They still give me time. I'm not finished. I, I want to draw a little bit of attention to what God is doing in the text. Did you notice that God reversed evil. He turned it in on itself. Haman got wily coyote'd in this situation. The anvil he set on the cliff for the Jews ended up falling on him instead. God protected his people just like he promised. So that's, that's like, thanks be to God. God is, God is good. There's two things from this text I want to consider. Two things. Um, number one, Jesus turns evil in on itself. That's what Jesus does. You ever notice that Jesus uh, constantly defeated evil in ways that we wouldn't think? Like, we, we think like, hey, you know how you de defeat evil is with influence and power and one-upping and charisma and cunning and strength and all that. Jesus defeats evil with being gentle, lowly, humble, and self-sacrificial. Well, what a lesson for us to learn right there, right? Maybe that's how we defeat it. I mean, yeah, there's times where Jesus called out the Pharisees and had some nice choice words for them. It was a lot of fun watching that. But he always turned evil in and on himself. You watch TV. You know I do too. You've seen Cobra Kai, haven't you? At least you saw the Karate Kids. What's the whole point of Mr. Miyagi's teaching? Is that you take what the, the, the opponent's blow, whatever, punching or kicking, whatever, and you use their weight against them in, in order to like, you know, block it or slam their face on the ground or give them a crane kick to the face or something like that. You've seen it, right? Is that, is that not what Jesus does? All of hell, all of evil gets poured his way and somehow he miyagis that thing in, in such a way that it turns it on itself and makes it look like a fool. That's what he's doing, right? Jesus, he brings the mighty low and the low high by just loving and being self-sacrificial. See, and in doing so, what Jesus does, he provides the greatest tool against evil. You know what the greatest tool is against evil? The cross. Recall the scene leading up to the cross. Jesus, he's sold out by one of his best friends. You ever been betrayed by one of your best friends? Not fun. He's sold out by one of his best friends. Uh, they captured him, they beat him, spit on him, mocking, torturing, beat him to an inch of his life. And then eventually they sentenced him to the death and nailed him to the cross. Mind you, Jesus not once had any sin whatsoever. 
Like if someone were to execute us and they're like, well, they weren't innocent. There are some things they did. Not with Jesus. Jesus was completely perfect. Now, zoom out of that scenario for just one second and imagine you could see Satan when Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's over there with his hands like, yeah, I got him this time. Like, I, like I, 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 I presented this whole picture. I got in people's ears. I did all these different things. I tempted it all. Now Jesus is dying on the cross. He's got to be so happy about it. It's like Jesus is standing on the X, eating the bird seed, and Satan is on the cliff with the Acme anvil ready to push it off on him. The same way Haman made the gallows as well, waiting to impale Mordecai on him. I can imagine just like the people in the story of Esther fretting, like they're going to die. I can imagine the disciples like that as well. Imagine Jesus' disciples. They've given everything. They've walked away from family. They've walked away from friends. They've walked away from jobs, from money, from all just security, everything to follow Jesus. And now Jesus leads them to the cross to where it looks like he's died, dying. And I can't imagine that they're just they're fretting like, we, we gave up our life for this? This guy is done for. No one comes back from death. Like this, is, this will be over. He's a goner. Satan is going to win. But don't forget, as Chuck Jones authored the plots of Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner, God has planned this moment from before the beginning of time. God is the one authoring this and orchestrating this. Also, know this as well. Sometimes we get confused. When it's Satan and Jesus, sometimes we think it's Satan versus Jesus like they are equally powered. Some, sometimes we get this image in our head. Maybe. There it is. Sometimes we got white Jesus on the left and fiery Satan on the right. Anyway, I'll stop there. That's it. And so like they're arm wrestling. And we think, oh my gosh, hopefully, hopefully Jesus will be like, you know, Sylvester Stallone from over the top in the 80s and like, go over. Listen, Satan has no rival. If you, if you notice in the Gospels, Satan and his goons are always looking at Jesus like, how much more time we got? They know, they know their uh, goose is cooked. They, they know that there's no rivals. See, what appeared to be rousing victory on the part of Satan and the forces of evil ended up being their demise. On the cross, Jesus assumes our sin, took the blows from evil, and entered into death. In doing so, he exhausted the penalty of sin, triumphed over evil, and conquered death. That is, sin was skewed by its own sinfulness. Evil was defeated by its own evil designs, and death was, in the words of John Owen, put to death in the death of Christ. Death died when Jesus died and rose from the grave. Augustine said it like this, the devil was defeated by his own victorious achievement. The devil was exultant when Christ died, and by that very death of Christ was the devil conquered. It is though he took the bait in the mousetrap. He was delighted at the death and being the commander of death that he delighted in, that's where the trap was set for him. The mousetrap for the devil was the cross of the Lord, the bait he would be caught by, the death of the Lord, and our Lord Jesus Christ rose again. Where now is the death that hung on the cross? It's in the grave. That's the good news of the gospel. In other words, what appeared to be the instrument of Satan's victory turned out ironically and, I'd say, poetically to be the very instrument of his death. And if Satan has been defeated by the cross and the resurrection, then such will be the fate of the Hamans of the world. Which brings me to point number two. Evil will one day come to an end. Christian, if we don't believe that, 
then why in the world would we have any hope? And it's easy to convince you that, that evil is rampant, right? I mean, like, have you turned on the news? That's all, you ever notice, like, there's no, well, at the end of a segment of the news for like 30 seconds, they put something good on, like, hey, here's a great teacher in Nebraska. They did some fun stuff or whatever. But, but for the rest of the hour, what is it? It's just murder and war and fighting and political garbage and all this. And like, if we're not careful, Christian, we get to the place where it's doom and gloom, no joy, despair, and like, you know what? The world really is a bad place and like just evil everywhere. We must have the hope that evil will eventually be ended. We must, we must keep this hope. I mean, I could sit here and rail and rail about all the evil things in the world and convince you that the world is a broken, evil place. I can say things like this. You know what one of the leading cause of death in Americans is? Abortion. Now you're like, whoa, Ty, that's political. Before it's political, listen to me, it's theological. Why? Because every human being is created in the image of God. And so tell me that doesn't grieve God's heart. Doesn't mean we go and blow up abortion clinics and attack people. No, 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 no. It's evil. That's what it is. It's, it's principalities. It's those. So like, let's go love people and help people and work through that and give options and alternatives. But nonetheless, it's got to grieve God's heart. If we just think, well, it's all going to get worse. It's like, no, 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 no. One day, evil will be undone. One day evil will die its less death. Even the evil outside in the world and the evil inside of us as well. I don't know about you guys, I still got it in me. And like, I, 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 I long for the day, long for the day when it's gone. Now I know when we start talking about the evils of the world and the evils inside, we're like, man, it just really feels like that God is standing afar and doing nothing about it. And sometimes it can, it can make us cry, oh, Lord, when? And, and how could you stand by and do nothing? And we read the Psalms and it gives us great comfort. But listen, listen to the words of Peter in 2 Peter 3. You gotta hear this. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, like the promise of coming back, the promise of eradicating all evils, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. But the day, day of the Lord, him coming back, will be like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God is patient. He is long-suffering. He is suffering through this with us as well. But there is a day he will return. Now, unfortunately, our world, and if we're not careful, us, we get lulled into thinking, you know what? No consequences are happening to anyone right now. There's no punishment right now. I guess God doesn't care. God's not going to do anything about it. First Thessalonians help us with that. While people are saying there's peace and security, you know, everything's good. God doesn't mind. He's cool. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. I know we're a church that talks about God's grace and loving people well, and absolutely we see in our Bible in 1 John chapter 4 that God is love, but we have a, a vengeful God as well. P please don't put him out of balance. If he's just all love. No, no, no. He wants justice. That's why I said earlier, why do we smile when we see Haman get his? Because we've been creating the image of God, and God is just. He wants all wrongs to be righted, and he will come, and he will right every wrong. Listen, listen to me, Christian. Do not grow weary in doing good just because it looks like evil is winning. 
Read the back of the book. It shows us, it tells us, it promises us that evil will be no more eventually. The evil in us and the evil in this world. Here's how I want to finish today. I just want you to sit kind of in a prayerful spirit. Just maybe close your eyes. And I want to read a section of Revelation over us to where we can be reminded, even as we read the story of Esther, we can see that evil was vanquished there. We can see cosmically that one day all evil will be removed and we can have hope because we can hang on. We can keep following Jesus. We can keep fighting the good fight. Let me, let me read this over us and then I'll pray and we'll go to the Lord's table. Revelation 21. I want you, I want you to use as much imagination with this as you can. When I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give you the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Lord, would you help us hold the two tensions in this text? the beautiful, glorious, majestic picture of your return. Heaven and earth as one. No death, no sin, no evil, no cancer, no sickness. Just pure bliss with you and our brothers and sisters that you are making all things new to where we will come thirsty and drink of your wellspring without price, to where we will dine at your table for all eternity. May we hold the other tension as well, that you are just and that your wrath will be poured out and so the tension is that wrath was poured out on Christ or poured out on the individual for all eternity.
That's it. And so, Father, may we feel an urgency inside of us to go and share your good news. That's the only escape. May we feel an urgency inside of to love people well and point them to Jesus. And God, may you, right here in this room right now, if someone feels the weight of that condemnation by your spirit, would you save them only by Jesus and his life, death, burial, and resurrection? to remove that condemnation where it's no, no more theirs, nowhere to be found because it fell on you, Christ. Father, help us weather these storms to where it seems like evil is loose, untethered, the evil in our own hearts, and the evil in the world around us. Would you give us the strength to carry on, to not grow weary in doing good, and to persevere to the end. Take us how we are. Empower and embolden us. Lift our spirits and give us the joy that only you can give us. We love you, Jesus, and we ask all this in your name. Amen. Amen.